Good morning. We are reading from the book of Micah, chapter 6, 1 to 8. The Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? The next part is from Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have ne neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. That's it. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you again. Uh, for those who I haven't had a chance to meet the last time I was with you, my name is Cameron Clousing. I am a lecturer at Christ College, the theological college of our denomination. It is good to be here. It's, I bring greetings from Christ College. My family and I normally worship at uh, Cornerstone in Strathfield, and that's where they are today. Um, it's, been a, it's been a great year at Christ College in many ways. We, we've had, uh, from what I understand, I've only been there for a few years, but from what I understand from talking to uh, people that know more of, of the history, we've had one of the largest classes of incoming students in our first semester. And then our second semester, we have not only maintained, but we've actually grown. Uh, this is a, a blessing and quite exciting for our uh, college and hopefully uh, as we see students become candidates for our denomination. Uh, I'm humbled and uh, thankful to David for asking me to come preach this week and next week. Uh, it's always an honor to stand behind the sacred desk and bring God's word to God's people. Uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to camp out in Micah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 both weeks. Uh, it's I don't normally preach the same passage twice, but I figured why not. It's, a, it's one of those passages of the Bible that, um, that can be read over and over and over again, and there's uh, little more that needs to be said than what's already said there. So as we look at this passage, we're going to consider the three cardinal virtues that are here in the Last verse of verse 8, Micah says, He has shown you, O man, what is good 
and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The, the next two weeks we will consider what does it mean, what does it look like to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God in this poor, fallen world. The passage before us tells us what is good. If we want to know what is good in this world, the passage before us tells us the answer to that. Before we consider Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8, let us go before the Lord our God in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you for this day, this day that you have given us, that, that we are to rejoice and be glad in it because it is the day of salvation. I ask you now to to teach us from your word. Use this, your word, to conform us to the image of your Son by the power of your Spirit. May we see Jesus in this text today. We, We pray this in the precious name of your Son, our Lord, the seed that crushed the serpent's head, the Alpha and the Omega. Amen. I have always hated the word balance. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those words that I don't really know what to do with. W- w- people tell me that it's good to have a work-life balance. I don't know what that means, really. I'm regularly told that I should look for some sort of third way in political conversations. I should neither be right nor left. I should be in the center, in, in the center. Aristotle extolled moderation. Cicero praised soberness. For Seneca, it was equilibrium, Plato, deliberation, Tacitus, temperance, and poise by Plutarch. All of them, and the world around us, is always telling us that the key to success and happiness in life is balance. And when I think about it, I... I'm not convinced that that is what the Bible tells us. Ephesians chapter 4 says that we are to be speaking the truth in love. There's no balance there. We're to be loving while we're speaking the truth. Galatians 6 says that we are to bear each other's burdens, but we're also to bear our own burdens. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are saved by grace, but it also tells us that we are saved for good works. Revelation chapter 14 tells us that the gospel is good news, but also news of fear and judgment. Jude chapter uh, Jude verses 21 and 23 tell us to hate sin and to love sinners. John 17 tells us that we are in the world, but not of it. James 2 tells us that faith is not works, but that faith without works is dead. Thinking about it, perhaps my issue isn't necessarily with the word balance or or, or with balance so much as it is with compromise. Often when we start to talk about balance, we're actually talking about compromise, a a, a compromise, almost a base version of pragmatism. Perhaps if we think about balance from a biblical perspective, biblical perspective, it isn't as bad as I often think about it in our world today. 
Not, not a version of modern stoicism or an attempt to place things on a metaphorical uh, work, uh, metaphorical uh, fulcrum, working hard to make sure that it doesn't swing too much to any extreme. Maybe a biblical understanding of balance is c- completely different in kind. Maybe, maybe it isn't an attempt to uh, stand between virtue and vice, looking for a happy medium could quite possibly be something different altogether. A, a well-rounded, wholehearted, fully integrated life that is rooted in the Bible. Maybe biblical balance isn't monolithic or one-dimensional dimen- in scope. What, what if biblical balance is a life that is animated by symmetry and stability, a, a lifestyle of equilibrium and equanimity? Perhaps biblical balance is really just the fruit of the harvest of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's the thing. I think I might be right. Why? Because the Bible doesn't allow us to be divided people. You see, the Bible is a happy melding of devotion and action, of being and doing, of patience and passion. It manifests in word and deed, faith and works, forgiveness and discipline. It is the integration of our inner life and our outer life. It makes quiet conviction the the natural companion of strident confession. It enables the head to coincide with the heart. Without compromising God's grace, it reveres God's decrees. Without, Without suppressing spiritual liberty, it upholds spiritual responsibility. All that to say... Biblical balance, I think, is mature. In a day and age marked by a revolt against maturity, it is, in this time there is a great need to put forth biblical balance. Because biblical balance, I think, is a rare commodity. Extremes dominate our day. One-dimensional obsessions control our churches, our discussions, and our lives. We have a a myriad of competing programs, projects, and paradigms. Each one lays claim to our time, our attention, and our resources. There is a, a kind of spiritual balkanization of sorts that has blurred our vision and hampered our efforts. Perhaps... My issue with balance isn't necessarily balance, but more of a practical pragmatism. What I think we need, what what I think the Bible puts forward for us, is a version of biblical balance. And it's a version of, of balance that's more thoughtful than rationalism, more experienced than existentialism. It, it's more romantic than sentimentalism. It's more stable than conservatism and more progressive than liberalism. Biblical balance offers us hope. Biblical balance is a cry for revival. And this is the very thing that we encounter in the passage before us today. 
what the, the, what the passage before us today, in Micah 6, chapters, uh, verses 1 to 8, puts forward for us is biblical balance. I mean, there are plenty of other places in the Bible that we can go look for for biblical balance. Luke 10, James 1, Matthew 17, Mark 16, John 13, Acts 2, just to name a few. These were never meant to be comprehensive in scope. They capture the, that truth that spiritual maturity is multifaceted. Each of those passages has its own emphasis. Each has its own perspective. However, each points to the same spiritual, uh, the sp- same spiritual fundamental, that the very practical nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road conception of biblical balance. However, arguably, the most complete of these, spirit, of these descriptions is found in the passage before us. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. One Old Testament biblical scholar says of Micah 6.8 that it is the quintessence of the commandments of the prophets understood uh, as the prophets understood them. Another one says that the, this is the finest summary of the content of practical religion to be found in the Old Testament. Through the ages, theologians and preachers from Ambrose to Christostom to Origen to Tertullian to Calvin and Whitfield and Cranfield have all emph- emphasized the central importance of comprehending the full dimension of the balanced Christian life. Spurgeon said of this verse, of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says that this verse beautifully expounded the lavish excellencies of spiritual maturity by testing the authenticity of salvation, divining the symptoms of spiritual health, and provoking the deepest conceivable pleasure in a Christian walk. Christians in every stage of life have recognized that within this single nugget of truth is a world of wisdom. It was for them the lodestone of authenticity. It was the benchmark of biblical balance. Micah 6.8 has been given the moniker by some as the Micah Mandate. It's often quoted and regularly without regard to the context of the verse itself. However, Micah 6.8 comes near the end of the prophecy of Micah, that the verse is part of a courtroom scene. The, The prophet has described a covenant lawsuit. The Lord has brought charges against his chosen people. The case is called to the throne room in verse 1. The throne room of heaven, all of creation, mountains, hills, the foundations of the earth, are called to hear the evidence and to bear witness to the proceedings, verse 2. The prosecutor then presents the evidence, verses 3 through 5, and the defendant explores the possibility of a plea bargain, verses 6 and 7. So what's the case that the Lord brings Apparently, Israel had grown weary of the Lord, verse 3. The the undertone here is one of infidelity. The the people complained that the Lord had overburdened them. Notice the irony of this situation. This is a courtroom scene. The people are on trial, 
but God turns around and puts himself on trial. He he asks the question, what exactly have I done to make you do this? What have I done that has led you to unfaithfulness? The irony continues because God turns his attention to what he has done. And he, and he says, let me tell you what I've done and tell me what, what in this has made you so weary. The, the indictment against Israel rests on the work that God has done for them. And, and he lays out four incidents. The first one is that he has rescued them from slavery in Egypt, verse 4. The second, the Lord, has, uh, the Lord says that he gives them godly leadership, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam in the wilderness, verse 4. Third, the reversal of Balaam's curses just as they were about to enter into the promised land, verse 5. And fourth and finally, the long-awaited crossing of the Jordan, Shittim being the east bank encampment and Gilgal, the west bank encampment, in verse 5. God is declaring and demonstrating his covenant faithfulness. In his good providence, he, he brought the people through every d- danger, toil, and snare. But Israel has, re- has failed to respond in kind. Her love has grown cold. So Israel responds by asking a question. And this is quite possibly the most important question in the entire world. This is, this, is, this is the question that every person needs to ask. It's the most important question you will ever ask. With what shall I come before the Lord? Israel realizes that, that, that the relationship is broken. And the language here implies that the people... The people want to enter into that relationship again. And the question is striking. Israel, Israel recognizes that she has sinned. She, she has broken covenant with God. She, her, her response is that she acknowledges that she is condemned, condemned for profound unbelief in the grace of God, condemned for refusal to repent, condemned for misunderstanding her covenant obligations. The language, however, doesn't end with just saying, how can I come before the Lord? No, she goes on and says, how can I bow myself before God on high? And this is the question. This This is the most important question any person will ever ask. How can I come into the presence of this transcendent, exalted God. Micah's language betrays Micah betrays this the remoteness that Israel feels between herself and God. I mean the amazing irony is that when you put this in contrast with what the Lord has already said in this passage, the, the way that the Lord has declared that he declared and demonstrated his nearness to them. He's already said, look, I am near to you in the Exodus. I I am near to you in in appointing leaders. I'm near to you in in the wilderness. I've been near to you in crossing the Jordan. And Israel says, we feel so far away from you. The wonder of this statement is that Israel is operating in in a world where everyone believed 
and a transcendent deity, a deity that ruled and reigned. They believed that God was transcendent and they were mere mortals. This is the assumption underlying this statement. How can I come before the Lord? How can I come be, how can I bow myself before God on high? What, what, what they're, the assumption that's being, that, that, that they have as they ask these questions is that God is great and I am small. There's, there's a transcendent divine power behind the universe and there's a gap between us. It, there's a gap between us and, and this deity Everyone in the ancient world believed this. And this is why everyone had temples. No one believed that you could just connect to the divine transcendence. The distance had to be mediated. And this is the the major difference between our time and their time, isn't it? I mean, if you read all of the surveys, people will tell you that, that Australia is getting less and less religious. Don't, don't believe the, the numbers. It's not true. People are just as religious as they used to be. They just don't believe that there's a gap between them and God. They, they, they believe that in, in, the, in the power out there, they, they, are, they are spiritual, but not religious. In our day and age, we don't really believe that there's that big a gap between me and God. I can just kind of waltz into his presence anytime I want. He's the spirit of love. Now, the ancients would have thought that that was crazy. They would have looked at you and said, look around. The world around, if God created this, he is way too big for you to just waltz into his presence as you are. Something has to bridge the gap. And Israel understood that. Israel understood that God is great and we are small and something has to bridge the gap. So what does Israel do? Well, they give the wrong answer. And that's what happens in the second half of verse, or in verse 7. They start to give the wrong answer and they start to bargain with God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? So so what's Israel saying here? He's saying, Israel's saying, shall I come before the Lord with calves a year old? I mean, Israel's starting out by saying, look, I've got some really expensive meat. I I just went down to the butcher. We've got some veal. We're going to be good. Maybe I'll bring that to God. Veal, I mean, that's that's some expensive meat. And then they say, okay, that might not work. Anybody can get veal. Let's get, ten, let's get thousands of rams. So they're saying something even more expensive. Not just some calves a year old, but let's go, let's go with something even more expensive. And they're like, okay, if that doesn't work, what if we bring 10,000 rivers of oil? Of oil? I mean, quite literally, what if we bring billions of dollars to the Lord? There's a sense in what, in that, 
and, and what Israel is saying here is, what if I br- brought you all the wealth of the world? Would that be enough burnt offering to enter into a relationship with you? St- stating that, they, that they, what they want to do is they not only want to bring it to, to God, but they want to bring it as a burnt offering. And unless you understand the, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll miss what Israel is saying here. So, so let me tell you, that they want to bring it as a burnt offering. And this is fascinating because it was, the, a burnt offering wasn't the offering that atoned for sin. It, it was, a burnt offering was used for giving your life, dedicating all. They, they recognized their sin, but they thought they could do the atoning. They, they thought, you know what, we realize we've sinned, but atonement can be bought. Everything has a price. There's a sense in which what Micah is saying here is, what if I surrender all? Would that be enough? Would that be enough to merit a relationship with you? Then Micah goes on and says the next wrong answer. The next wrong answer is, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my, the sin of my soul? Micah turns from burnt offerings in the first part of verse 7 to sin offerings in the second part of verse 7. When you sinned in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system required that you bring an offering to atone for that sin. And we still have that impulse in society, don't we? I mean, when you, uh, we, we all do stuff like this, don't we? We offend somebody and, and ask, what can I do to make this right? I mean, I have children. This is, this is my children's response every time that they mess up. Okay, what do I need to do to make to, to make this relationship whole again? What can I do to atone? Oftentimes, there's a price that we can pay. There's a way in which we can undo the damage. But frequently, we've done something against somebody in such a way that there's no price can be paid. And the relationship is forever hurt. So Israel says, can I just live for God to enter into a relationship with him? Can I, can I just, what if I just live for him? If that doesn't work, God, what if we brought the most personal pain and agony on ourselves? Would that be enough? And the Lord says to Israel, no, none of these things. None of these things will bring you into relationship with me. What this means is that there, there, is, there is nothing that we can do to merit our relationship with God on high. I, I don't think many people believe this. M- most people in our 
society and in our churches believe if, if I just work hard enough and sacrifice enough, God will accept me. Micah says, no, you don't really get it. You don't get how big God is and how bad you are. So verse 6, the, the question that, that's posed there is, is still standing before us. How can we come before this God, this transcendent God? And this is when we get to verse 8. We read, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Now taken out of context, this can fit into how our society approaches religion. It sounds like all you have to do is be a good person. Taken out of context, this verse says you figure out what is just, merciful, and who your God is, and live in the way that you think is right. However, the entire Bible says that you need atonement for sin. It isn't good enough just to try to live a good life. Isaiah says that our sins are like scarlet. Isaiah says that it is our best deeds that are filthy rags before God. When God brings His people, uh, to, when God brings his, uh, brings the people together at Sinai, He says, "You are my people," and then He gives them the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle and sacrifices. I mean, it's amazing. At Sinai, the Lord says, "I've saved you," and then He says, "Here's how you live, and here's the tabernacle and sacrifices." Why does he give them the tabernacle and the sacrifices right after he gives them the Ten Commandments? Because he knew no one would be able to live the way that he had commanded. So there was a need for atonement for sin. Verse 8 isn't telling them you don't need atonement for sin. Verses 6 and 7 have already said to them, you can't do the atonement. You can't live a good enough life. You can't sacrifice everything. You can't atone for your own sin. But there still needs to be atonement. And here's the amazing thing. When we look at this command, do justly, love mercy, we realize that we are talking about the second table of the law, the second table of the Ten Commandments, And when Jesus considers the law, and particularly the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor, Jesus never says that this is how you get right with God. No, he uses it to show the people that they are not doing what God requires. I mean, think about it. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and and he's very proud of how he's been living. And and Jesus says, well, you know the law. And he goes, I've done it all. And then Jesus uses the law to remind him that he hasn't done it all. He says, yeah, but you aren't really doing what the law requires. 
I mean, we read in Matthew chapter 23, what happens with the Pharisees? Jesus says, hey, you've been doing a lot of great things, but you haven't really been keeping the law. Here's the thing, when we, when we begin to think about what the law requires, we realize, that, we realize that there is no way that we can fulfill that which the law requires. John Wesley, when he was uh, at Oxford, joined uh, and starting the Methodist movement with, with uh, some of his friends, um, joined a club called the Holiness Club. It was, there was a few of them at, at Oxford at the time, and, and he realized, and, and these were a group of people that realized what the law required of them, and the members of the club would ask themselves some questions every day. I'll only mention a few of them so as not to burden your consciences, but here, here's the questions that they would ask. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am a better person than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts or words, or do I exaggerate? Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or uh, self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give it time to speak to me each day? Am I enjoying prayer? When, I, when did I last speak to somebody else with the object of trying to win that person for Christ? Am I making contacts with other people and using them for the master's glory? I mean, the list goes on. They, they ask themselves these questions every day. And as you read these questions, they become crushing Because this is what the law requires. In our culture, you you hear people say that they may not believe in God, but they try to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. What really matters is that I just live a good life. This just means that they they actually haven't read the Sermon on the Mount Because what does Jesus do there? I mean, we know what he does there, don't we? You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, don't even hate your brother. You've heard it said, thou thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look at another person lustfully. What Jesus is showing here is that the law doesn't just forbid behavior, but it calls forth virtue. Murder comes from resentment, so Jesus says, look, You all have some resentment. Yeah, you may not end up murdering someone, but everyone resents. That, That right there, Jesus says, is the seed of murder. So the Bible says you should love. When the Bible says don't steal, it's getting at envy and calling forth generosity. When it says, uh, when it condemns adultery, it's calling forth fidelity in all our relationships. Thus, when we read the law or hear Jesus, we should say, oh, no one lives up to this. Yet when we think about it, we realize it would be amazing if other people did, don't we? if we put Micah chapter 6, verse 8, in the context of the rest of the Bible, 
we realize that this is not the recipe for getting into a relationship with God. It's not the answer to the questions in verse 6. When we, put, when we put Micah 6, verse 8 in its context, in the context of the rest of the Bible, what we realize is that our sin still has to be atoned for, for, verse six, for the questions from verse 6 to be answered. What we realize is that our sin still has to be atoned for, but we can't do the atoning. We also see that, of course, this is what God requires of us. We just can't do it. We put Micah in context. We realize Micah is doing more than we realize at first. And when, when, he, when he points to offering our firstborn for our sin, he's connecting us back to the very beginning of the Bible, where, where we find this very curious law in Numbers chapter 3. There's this very curious law which states that the firstborn is forfeit. The firstborn is, is forfeit because it's, it, it's, a, it's a sacrifice to the Lord for the sins of the family. However, a ransom was paid for the firstborn. The life of the firstborn was required as a sacrifice. You see, what God is saying there is that we deserve to die for our sins. The wages of sin is death. The firstborn was the representative of the family. And God said, instead of the firstborn's life, I will accept a ransom. And here's the thing. Why doesn't God require the life of the firstborn? Why doesn't God make the Israelites give their firstborn because of their sin in Micah? The the reason... Is be, the reason he can forgive us, the reason that sin can be atoned for, is because God, God the Father, gave his firstborn son to atone for our sin. You see, God the Father walks the hill of Calvary with his son, much like Abraham does with his son. And, and, and as he as he brings his firstborn son to atone for our sin. Jesus dies on the cross, and and God's firstborn for us, atoning for our sin. And and just like when Abraham goes to to plunge the the knife down and the hand is is stayed, so that Abraham does not have to sacrifice his firstborn, On the hill of Calvary, God, the, the hand of, of the Father is not stayed, and his own son is sacrificed on our behalf. And in Genesis, when, when Abraham heard from God, now I know that you love me. When we approach God and we, and we say, how can I come before the, the Lord on high? How can we answer the question, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? We are able to say, to turn back to God and say God's words back to him, say, 
we're able to look at the Son on the cross and point and say, now I know that you love me. We can read the first part of Micah chapter 6 and hear that this was for us, that he has redeemed us, that he has given us leaders to guide us, that, that he is walking with us through the wilderness and will cause us to set our feet safely on the other side of the Jordan one day. For he did not withhold his son, his only son. Only when we put verse 8 in the context of the entire scripture can we know what is good and what the Lord requires of us. Only when we put verse 8 in the context of the entire scripture can we know how to have a relationship with God. And it's only when we put this verse in the context of the entire uh, scripture that we can rest, that we can understand the rest of this. That we can know the answer to the question, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Here's how we do that. By pointing at the sacrifice of Jesus. This is how we can know and say that God is our God. And we can know what that means then. And this means that we are in a covenant relationship with God. So what does it look like then to be in a covenant relationship with God? Well, to do justly. To love mercy. To do justly, that means to care for the widow and the orphan, migrants and and the poor. If you are a Christian, you should be deeply committed to the most vulnerable people in society. To love mercy. This is, this is that, 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 that amazing word throughout the Bible and throughout the, 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 New Te- the Old Testament that, that, that is the word of God's counter-conditional love. His never-failing, never-giving-up love. Micah says that this is what we should be characterized by. Notice that, notice that Micah doesn't say that we should just live mercifully. No, he says that we are to love mercy. We are to love to live like this. We, we love people whether we get anything out of it or not. We, we are committed to people even if we're upset with them. Even if they let you down. We don't give up on people. We, we stay in relationships with people, even if those people and those relationships drain us. N- next week, we'll consider the last piece of this as, as this beautiful triad. However, I want to end with this last story of someone who embodied these virtues. Anna Bowden was... Uh, left the life of safety of her family's comfortable London home to serve as a missionary in India. Facing the stark brutality and and crass occultism of 19th century India, this proper Victorian lady 
started a rescue network for women and girls who were damned by the ancient pagan practices. When, when she was asked to refrain from her activities to rescue lives, she refused and ended up dying at the hands of an angry mob. She demanded that Christian doctrine be paired with Christian action. When she was warned to stop, she replied, We must rescue the perishing. I can do no less and still be faithful to the high calling of the sovereign Lord. She provoked a a clash between Christian ethics and heathen brutality. She also mobilized the church in her death, ultimately causing radical reform to the legal code for the protection of the least and the last in the Indian society. Do you want to know what is good in this world? Micah says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This, brothers and sisters, this, my friends, is biblical balance. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. Let us pray. Heavenly Heavenly Father, we, we do come before you thankful for your great faithfulness. Thankful for the many ways in which you have led us, your people, through many dangers, toils, and snares. We're thankful for the work of your Son on our behalf who has brought us into relationships so that we might know how we can be in relationship with you. Not only how we can be in relationship with you, but how we then live that relationship in this poor fallen world. So Lord, we, we ask you now to bury this truth deep in our hearts that we might know what it means this day and uh, as we go out of this place to do justly and to love mercy in this poor fallen world. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.